but you were not busy enough to speak to War Allen Tyres, the psychotherapist and co-creator of the PFM, the proper football man. And it was lovely. I think I cheered when I saw Alan's there. I went, hey, Alan's in to talk about VAR, which um, your argument in this book is that VAR is already dead and that they'll quietly remove it. You also, there's a really interesting line, by the way. You say that um, being anti-VAR is part of your identity, which I am very interested in. So what does happen when they remove the VAR? Well, I, I was just, you know, in the way that um, often happens when you write books that have a, a kind of contemporaneous perspective, I think I've got that wrong. I think what's happened post-pandemic um, and post-lockdown is that VAR has become just accepted. I think everybody's acquiesced on it totally. The anger that was at VAR decisions has turned to mild frustration. And uh, while I still think it's an absolutely ludicrous idea and I don't agree with it in principle or in practice, I think that people are so delighted just to be able to go and watch football again that they're just tolerating it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, and I'm not sure it will be removed now. I think it's become embedded. And uh, I'm very disappointed by that. And I still think it ruins games. And so maybe once we've got used to going to football and again in three or four years' time, we'll get tired of the interruptions. But um, it hasn't gone the way I thought it would go, um, which disappoints me. But then the world hasn't. Maybe. Do you think that at half time at Stockley Park, they're reading extracts of your book out loud and going. Definitely. Yeah, I think so as well. You also say really interestingly that VAR panders to your anxiety. This whole, which is why bringing in Alan's perspective is yeah. fascinating, and it's an anthology-worthy chapter about how it's about control. It's about yeah. people. It's the jet. I, I can't do it justice. Just read it. But War Alan speaks a lot of sense. Alan is uh, very. I mean, Alan is for anybody that doesn't know. Wrote for Football Three Six Five for many years, and um, I first met him twenty odd years ago. And uh, he also writes about football and cricket for The Telegraph. And he just decided to have a massive career change and retrained as a psychotherapist. So I talked to him. I wanted to get behind the psychology, that draw of the need for VAR to be introduced. And uh, and we discussed it long. For I mean, that we had discussed it for years now, really. So I tried to distill that in that discussion I put into the book. And his perception, and it's one that I think I agree with, is that... Um, in, a, in, a, in an age where uh, people are very anxious, uh, they're anxious in general in life, but in football they want to be, they want things not to be ambiguous. I think we want things to be right and we want them to be wrong. The role social media plays on this I think is interesting because uh, if you are on social media, you need to be seen, a lot of people, this isn't my situation, but a lot of people you'll see need to be seen to be right. Uh, and VAR gives you that opportunity. You can say, look, you know, his toenail was offside. Offside is offside. And uh, and that resolves it. And that makes you feel like I'm right. I'm on the right side. Whereas I I am a close enough to rock and roll guy. You know, I'm not bothered about everything being quite in tune. I'm not bothered about mistakes. I accept it all as part of humanity, and a part of the human experience. Try to get it right. You will always get it right. And that's good enough for me. And that is two very different outlooks on life, I think, really. And um, and I think VAR finds its supporters amongst a, a kind of people who uh, worry that things are not being made right and want everything to be 100% right. And people like me who are uptight like that. You know? So that was what we concluded anyway. Yeah, something to monitor. Nobby styles made of plasticine and spanners.
That's fantastic. This is about how that you are not a fan of the professionalization of football, fitness, diet, muscles. You say medical science offers players a reason not to play. So do you wish that in your own work, uh, some kind of writer physio could diagnose you and say, oh, you're in the red zone. You can't write your piece today. (laughs) That would be tremendous. I think I'm always in the red zone. To be fair, I think I've gone beyond the red zone into a different into the purple zone. They're injecting you with horse tranquilizer into your ankles. Oh no, into your metacarpals. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happens anyway. Man. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just part of the daily diet. But the thing I write about professionalism is is something I've felt for a long time, and I, th- I think it's allied and integral to the whole um, dominance of the elite of football. As I say, many years ago. Football was all one, and now it's very much not one at all. It's all you know, into subdivisions. And uh, uh, what part of that is that the professionalisation, which just means that you have to be like fit beyond beyond all reason, fit, you know. And it, it, I don't see the value of that really. It, it, what's happened? It's like a fitness arms race, uh, you know, because one side is incredibly fit and can outrun you. You've got to get up to their standard, and then the next one down the line has to get up to your standard because. You're faster and fitter than they are. I'm not sure that's anything to do with entertainment. Because if it was, nobody would have ever watched football when uh, Francis Lee had a, an actual belly. He had an actual beer belly. Um, people were great at football when they weren't me- mega fit. You know, people had great skills when they weren't mega fit. And nobody was bothered about it. And I, don't, I, I see it's changed football. But I don't, I, I don't even think it's necessarily made it worse. It's just changed it. And I don't see the point in that. I don't see the point in you know, kind of being 8% body fat, you know. If it was healthier, then we would see uh, ex-footballers living like 110 years, and we don't. So I, don't, I just don't see, I don't see what anybody's gaining out of it, really. It's good for these kids to look up to some well-toned athletes, but again, this yeah, is an argument you've advanced not. before. You need football to yeah. be on non-paid-for TV for kids to lose a bit of weight. I just, I, I just think... In a way, that that, that that is a good point, and I, I maintain that is that is true. Correct. You're absolutely right. Body fascism is an important thing. And if you see, you know, you're not going to get calves like Jack Grealish, nor should you want to. You know, um, I, I I think you can set standards which is just unachievable, and that makes people depressed because they think, you know, if you're a young lad and you're, you know, your genetics say that you can't be a, you can't have a a body like oh, God knows who, you know. John Stones or somebody. Oh, well, you, know? you say you say Declan Rice, Connor Cody, and Mason Mount all look the same, and that's brilliant. Yeah, they, that's a really good point. They do. That is the classic modern footballer look. You know, he's sort of tall, broad, very lean. It looks looks if you ran into them, it would hurt. Hmm. You know, and the, uh, and we are. I read Pat Nevins. I had the audible of Pat Nevins autobiography. It's astonishing. Book of the year. Book of the year. Yeah, it's and it's fantastic and good. Good old Pat. And I wonder if Pat, if Pat Nevin would get a game now, not because of his talent, but because of his size. And now I know we we can say like to the likes of Messi, little um, you know, kind of wee shufflers, but that is very much the outlier. Now we used to have all different shapes and sizes playing football. Now we tend not to. You tend to be five eleven to six one, you know, and you're all, they're all about sort of twelve and a half stone, you know, and they're made of muscle. Again, I just I know this. I don't know what we've achieved by this being the case, but I know that it is the case very much. You know, I said the difference, right? Was I, I think I did this in the book. I, the difference between Paul Pogba and Patrick Vieira, mm-hmm. who I kind of I mean, where Pogba plays 
is anybody's guess. But kind of operated in that kind of midfield, advanced midfield role. In the 90s, it was still very much the case that you had to be physically capable of holding your own because people could still go over the top on you. And it was a more, it was still a more physical game. Now, Vieira was tall and rangy and he was as strong as an ox. It really was. I mean, he was a real unit. Um, Pogba, if he was playing in 1998, he would get battered, he'd get snapped, you know? And But he's the modern, he's a modern tall, broad, thin guy without as much kind of density to it, really. And I, I, that is a classic case of how things have evolved and changed. You know? It is very interesting to note, because I've got this 12 Days of Fergie coming up. Paul Pogba, Ferguson didn't like him. He didn't like his agent. But Ferguson would rather have played Skulls, 36-year-old Skulls, than promote Paul Pogba. I think that's a QED. Yeah, that is, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. Mm. That's fascinating. You know, kind of things do change. There's no reason... I'm not arguing for everything to remain the same forever and things just do change it's just that there's such an obsession with with this now I, I do worry what it does to people I mean I, if I was you know when I was a kid growing up I was I was tall for my age when I was 13 and I was just average for my age when I was 18 I worry what would have happened to my mentality if I had to live up to being you know being a modern day football just trying to look like Mason Mount or you know, somebody, I wish you could just, it would be very difficult for you to achieve. And I, and I worry that that bends people's minds and think, well, you know, I'm not all, I'm not all I should be because I, you know, I, I can't spend 12 hours a day in the gym, you know? Um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's become about gym work. Um, there is a line you use in this book, which again, was football better in the old days or is now better than back then? £10 on paperback, John Nicholson, writer, doc. UK for the book. It's available as an ebook. Football allows us to forget football's problems. There's another great piece that I haven't read yet, uh, Josimar. It's the great Philippe O'Claire. Now he's off about how Everton have a betting sponsor that we don't know if they exist. Uh, Watford on the front of their shirt have stake.com. Stake.co.uk doesn't exist. Very strange. If you were advising Gareth Southgate at the press conference after the World Cup draw, what would you tell him to say in response to the question, Qatar? Well, um, I am disgusted that Qatar is even happening. And I think, I, I know this is, an, this is not a majority view, but I don't think we should take part in it. Um, and, you know, I know that would be, um, football isn't that important. It's important in many ways, but, you know, how much do, how much we are, are being asked to tolerate and turn a blind eye to? I just, I, I, you can't keep on doing that. I, I, it's like with the Newcastle thing. It's the same sort of principle, really. And PSG like, and Man City. Absolutely. And, you know, and you, can, you can go through them all. You have to be able to draw a line. Just because I want to see England in a World Cup doesn't mean to say I think I should endorse the death of slave workers to make that happen. They say, well, you know, them is the breaks, pal. You know, I just, I, I can't. I can't, I, I I know that it will trouble Gareth because he is does he is a very principled person. Though so he has, you know, he has to balance a lot of concerns, obviously. And now, obviously, if one, I see, I think if one withdrew, uh, it, you know, on principle, they would not be the only one. There are, has been rumours that Norway might do. Oh, Norway haven't qualified, have they? So, no, they've they've done, they've done the right thing. They've essentially yeah. sat this one out. Yeah. But, you know, we've got a chance to make a difference. 
and not just go along with it and say it's all right. Because it was obviously awarded corruptly, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, do we really want to endorse that without a presence? I don't think so. I really don't. I don't know why that would be such a, a radical viewpoint, and I suspect that the internet wouldn't like it, you know? It is going to be very interesting to see what the football media angle is. Because they'll all go into their huddle, as you say in the book. They're all going to come out with yeah. the line. And they're all... Yeah. Well, the argument is what Johnny Northcroft did, which is that he went to Russia and he said, right, the people are friendly. They've made us welcome. The football is great. Uh, you yourself in this book say international football is pure because it is yeah. um, nation going up against nation, although you can poach people uh, through passports. Yeah. But it's undiluted by money. Although at the same time, my million-dollar question... How can England be so good when domestically, in order to watch them, we have to pay vast sums of money for a subscription? I don't think those two things are related, are they, really? The money in in English football is largely derived from the media rights, and the quality of England's players are largely derived from uh, them actually managing to put a decent system together um, at St George's Park to get everybody to, to... you know, to actually utilise some decent coaching, which is something that seems to have been missing for 50 years. Um, I'm not quite sure that the money and the talent is necessarily related. It's related in terms of uh, what teams can buy from the United Nations of football. But I don't think it's necessarily related to bringing players through for England, is it? Well, I just thought if these young players can't watch the older players, like... Calvin Phillips couldn't watch Steven Gerrard unless he had a Sky yeah. subscription. And yet Calvin Phillips is getting some of the best man-to-man management there has ever been in association football with Bielsa. You do say, I love this line, when Calvin Phillips breaks up the play, it makes everything else dissolve. So I'll always think of you when I think of Calvin Phillips. But I just, just because you're so militantly against football under a paywall, the Fodens, yeah. the Phillipses... The, the mounts, they're all becoming some of England's best. I mean, this, and then Rashford, Saka, Sancho, da-da-da, Sterling, um, who's involved in some meditation as well. But that's a separate point. I just, I wanted to raise that with you just in case, and you've, you've shot me down quite rightly. I love the line when you say, no player has a three out of ten as well as a tell out of ten. They're all seven out of tens. Yeah. Uh, which brings me to Borough. Chris Wilder's a great appointment. Yeah, very appropriate appointment, I think. I always tend to like our managers. The only one I never really liked was um, Gary Monk. I always thought he was a, just had a look about him. I didn't like. He looked like a 1930s cat. I thought. Creaky mm. blinder. Body. Yeah, yeah, it does look like that. But um, but you can see the parallels between Sheffield United and Borough, not least the steel industry. So yeah, I think it's a good appointment. I suspect we'll get into the playoffs um, with him. That being said, as I always say, and uh, even though when I go on um, uh, uh, Radio T's uh, local, BBC T's local media, uh, this isn't necessarily a popular viewpoint, <laughs> that I always prefer Middlesbrough to be in the second tier. I never, I, I want us to get promoted in order to keep the club financially viable, but I'm not interested in playing top-flight football. I, uh, I'm just not. Just I think it's a, it's a, a false promise. And... Um, and offers nothing, you know, and all that will happen is we'll get battered and then we'll get relegated again. So I don't see the point in that. But uh, anyway, but yes, I think Wilder's a good appointment. Uh, it is funny, though, you know, that um, the championship um, is very popular. Uh, and yeah, I get 
people writing to me all the time who uh, of, of clubs that are in contention for promotion saying, I really want us to win the league. I really want us to get promotion. I really want us to win the playoffs. But I don't really want us to get promoted. I, I love it in the championship. I love the competitiveness. The, the fact it generally is a, a kind of very open league. You know, that is, strikes to me uh, that the um, Premier Who's League is incredible. If it's putting people off going into it, um, and the only reason people want to go into it is for the money, not for the not for the football, but for the money. Now that that, that is a pretty much a solid definition of dysfunctional, I think. It's not a comp- it's not a competition. Not seeing, well, I don't want to compete against that. It's just a nonsense. You know, you can't compete against it, so don't even try. You know. And yet, and I, I, this may be a poor segue. The greatest era in modern English football was between. Paul Gascoigne chipping Colin Hendry and Ole Solskjaer winning it for United in the last minute, which was a period that was won by United, Arsenal, United, the two teams with the biggest money. And also, uh, this might be um, pertinent too, Middlesbrough reaching, was it two cup finals, which you you politely don't mention in that, but I just want to, for the sake of completeness, this was when Middlesbrough were, um, had all the, had, well, had Steve Gibson's money paid for Ravinelli and Emerson and Janino and was it Viduca yeah. at that time? Um, I was Viduca, yeah. Yeah. So so and uh, and and one more thing: Watford rose through the divisions, yes, but Elton John gave them a million quid. Uh, when I first started to write the book, I uh, thought that on the balance of things, I would come down on the side of six of ninety six to ninety nine being the best time for football because I've, uh, and the basis of that was um, it uh, we had the best of overseas talent in Britain but we hadn't lost any of the much of much of the physicality and the kind of old school drive that made English football really popular and uh, and so it seemed like a good hybrid in the best of all worlds mm-hmm. but in fact the reason I didn't come down in the end on that point was precisely for what you just said that already the money was warping things because if you know, we did have a, a massive investment from Steve, and um, you know, if if you can turn Middlesbrough into a, a double cup final side with money, uh, then you know, you start to see the kind of repurposing of the league as a as a plaything for very very rich people. It was, and that very much laid the ground for what then happened in the subsequent twenty years. You know, so I I, I thought you know, in some ways it is, but I thought. No, it probably is the start of where things were going wrong, really. So, yeah, I also just feel generally uncomfortable about that duopoly of uh, United and Arsenal. As great as United were as well, as good as Arsenal were too. Mm. And that United side of 96-7 was just fantastic. I loved that. And you can hear about that in my 12 Days of Fergie. I've read Danny Taylor's book about Ferguson and mainly his relationship with the media, as well as uh, Paddy Barkley's book, Michael Crick's book, so there will be plenty on Ferguson and United. Not a nice man in some parts, but I did love reading about his odyssey as a player and a manager in Scotland. So he turns 80. You're aware of this. He's 80 on New Year's Eve, the same day as Steve Bruce is. I think 61, Steve Bruce, this year. I don't know I if the Scottish like... press will cover it, but um, the English press certainly will, and we're covering it in the Football Library. Um, Ferguson gets a tiny little mention here. Are we now post Ferguson. Is there anyone like Alex Ferguson in either Scottish football or English football? Uh, I think I think the modern day culture mitigates against it. Really, 
I suspect there are examples which I, will, I don't know about in lower league football. And, you know, there are people who have been who are at clubs for a relatively long period of time. But I think, I think Ferguson was always an outlier to the curve. I mean, I, I just think that, you know, you can't judge anything by that. I, it, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit in with everybody else. I mean, one of the great myths of football is that somehow we, uh, managers used to be given a chance you know, the ex-pundit, the ex-player pundit's favourite line is, you know, I think he needs more time, you know. And uh, managers have always got sack. Uh, I mean, like, and there's always been clubs with high turnovers of managers. Chelsea, turnover managers, like um, like doing a, a weekly wash. You know? <laughs> and they've always been like that, you know. It isn't just under Abramovich. So I think that is a bit of a myth race. So I think Ferguson's situation was just always really, really unusual. And I think his relationship at the club with Martin Edwards and everybody was very unusual as well. Uh, I just, uh, you know, you couple that with winning, obviously, the first title in 92-3. So I feel as though that is a question which doesn't have application to the rest of the world now or even back then. I think it was just mm. is a thing in and of itself. Well, if anything, he was, a, he was the Jock Steen and the, or the Brian Clough style, and that was going out. Yeah. But it's just very interesting. I hope you managed to um it'll be in 12 parts across 12 days um and that's the only way i can follow you and Stuart cosgrove because once i've hit you two it's very (laughs) difficult i will continue this into 2022 i've got some various podcasters that i want to speak to and indeed andy holt at some point Uh, but i can't see that many books next year miggy delaney has got one about the uh, 150 years of the fa cup (coughs) coming out in march so that seems to be the book of the year uh, Daniel Storey has just written the words for a picture book about the history of English football, which you may or may not receive for Christmas. <laughs> it's a competitive market. I must say that when I wrote Can We Have Our Football Back and its um, sequel, Can We Have Our Football Back Yet, um, just to update it really, I never expected that to do as well as it did. And, uh, and I was amazed that it did. Um, it really struck a chord. It, I, saw, I don't know if you know this, but I sold enough copies of that to buy a house. I always use that. That That is right in my mind. I've got a book coming out next year, which is on pitch, so it's not going to buy me a house. Yeah, I, I love the fact. Because you kept it in-house. You and Dawn are able yeah. to live in the lap of luxury. Absolutely. Asterisk. We sold 25,000 copies, uh, about £7.40 profit a copy. That's astonishing. And, uh, that, I, it was just um, the, the work that went in to just packing the books was phenomenal. I can't tell you. Until you sat packing books for 16 hours a day, you can't imagine what it's like. It's so tedious. Oh, yeah, stamps the, and uh, addresses. Yeah. Oh, the post office at Pitt and Weem hated us. We had to end <laughs> up having sending the van round to collect them all every day um, because we had so many sacks of them. You should have hired but Rambo. Anyway. Rambo would have done it. <laughs> Rambo's disappeared. Yeah, I saw that. I had a look. Very sad that no one knows where Rambo is. He was was this massive fella, and he just... I noticed one week he didn't turn up, and I don't know where he's gone. Hope he hasn't got transferred. Anyway, but yeah, uh, the point being, it's it's such a competitive market writing for football books, partly because there's such a market, you know, to sell into. But it's really hard to to, to cut uh, a difference, and I'm just really lucky with that. This new book, I bet, doesn't do anywhere near as well as that um, because I just think you get what... Everybody's got a good hit in them, I think, and that was my hit, uh, which allowed me to, to buy a house, and uh, which is the first house I ever bought, and probably the only house I'll ever buy. 
Um, and for that, I am phenomenally grateful to everybody who bought it. And I can't tell you how it changed my life. It oh, really changed my life. It's made retirement a lot easier. Yeah, as that's your angels, this new book, uh, Was Football Better in the Old Days, or is now better than back then? It's kind of your supreme millennium. It's a big one, but it won't be angels. It won't be played at funerals, for instance. <laughs> Just to just to finish before, are you on deadline today or are you taking it easy today? Um, I have got my piece done, so um, I've just got a couple of things to do today. I haven't got and I, my next big day is Wednesday, so no, you're all right just now. Very good. And how many books will you write next year? I will probably write two. I would have thought next year, as long as the muse descends by the new year. I've got four thousand words of a new novel written. But I've just got a bit. I've just got, I'm just mentally tired. I've just thought I've it's been written, a long year. I went, I've written about four million words, and that's just the published words in the last eight years. That's probably sixteen million words written because I I edit Ooh. everything by fifty percent. So yeah, so you know, there's only so much you can do. Really, <laughs> I don't think I'll do another football book for a while though. I think I've shot me bolt on that now. That's... Unless anybody wants. Well, there's the columns at Football 365. There's a very good one about how the new trend is long ball football, a return to chaos over control. That's an argument to explore in a whole. But there are all these statistical books and tactical books coming out. I love love all of that because it's not something I I could do. And I love that people are experts in it. You know, I think that's really interesting. Absolutely. It's just I, I... I love the nerdy aspect of it, really. I know it's much criticised, but I really like it. One uh, million it people follow TIFO football. That's that's all you need to know about how this tactical... And was it Mike... Uh, not Michael Cox, the other one. Tom Warville's got a job at Red Bull. Right. Recently. Well, well I, I mean, even Statman Dave I find fascinating. Mm. That comes and goes for that? me. I'm, I'm up and down with Statman Dave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the warm, the warm beating heart of football, the cake under the icing, the fresh, untainted nature of a new season. Starting to sound like Danny Gray here. The fresh, untainted nature of a new season. It's kind of like the John uh, Ronson of football. That's my pal. He's, 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 I've said to him, he's part John Betjeman, part Simon Armitage. Yeah, I'm having that. He'll write the football books for you. Um, the, um, we haven't had time to talk about the less predictable nature of uh, football, the shirt sponsorship that ruined localism. Um, my question, are today's coked up hordes the victims as all the hoolies were kind of victims and just, just getting out the abuse that they had at home in the 1980s? Again, these are questions that would I have had you for three hours, um, but people have got to enjoy their Christmas season. It, they may be listening during this crimbo limbo period uh, or kind of sky's great. Melange between Christmas and New Year, but do you have a routine Christmas and New Year? Do you listen to lots of radio? I I, I listen almost exclusively to radio. Yeah, yeah. I am a radio guy. I, I I always have been. I I fell in love with listening to the radio and football on the radio in about 1971, and uh, I've, I've, it's a habit I've never broken. Uh, I've, I I somebody once said to me, "How can you listen to matches on the radio because you can't see what's going on?" I said, "Oh yes, you can. Yeah, oh yes, you can. It's the theatre of the mind." And um, I, I still hold to that view, really. But in, in Christmas, as I don't celebrate Christmas because I don't understand it. I don't understand what it's all about. I never have done. I, I, I say it's not quite true. I did. Me and Don once um, uh, stole a turnip from a field in Scotland in 1984, uh, up in um, up on the Black Isle, and because uh, we didn't have any money, and we put a candle in there and celebrated Christmas with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last time. 
celebrating Christmas, a giant turnip. I understand if you're religious and it's the whole Jesus thing, I get that. Santa thing I don't understand. I don't know what he is. I don't know what he's doing. And I don't understand any of that. We don't, obviously, we don't have kids, so we don't have to play the game. Mm. But I think it's a game, really, you know. And it's also the, the kind of triumph of materialism, isn't it? Which I don't like either. It's a shame because I was going to uh, box up 49 different types of olive oil. Um, in honour of Jesus's birth. No, I'm on avocado oil now, man. Ooh, okay. Now, if okay. I'm going to take anything away today, avocado oil. Yeah, avocado oil. It's the new elite oil. Just like the library. Just like the library. Just like the library.